and you're going to have a meeting with yourself. And when you have that meeting, you're going to pick, throw a dart back in time, 2019, 2017, and think about everything of that day, how you looked at the world, how you understood certain concepts, and then think about how you understand them now and go, oh my, you're going to be blown away. You will say, who was that imposter? How did that person ever get here? And it's an incredible feeling of accomplishment and progression. And so, you know, I had all of these feelings and I've learned, and this is what I'm trying to impress on early career professionals, that go for it. You have to push yourself. Hey, I'm Jordan Harding. I grew up watching my dad put on that suit and tie every morning and go out to successfully climb the corporate ladder. I thought I wanted to be him, but I was wrong. I needed to be me. To do that, I had conversations with incredible people to learn how they figured out this whole thing called life. I learned how they overcome adversity and pick themselves up when they've been knocked down. Now, I'm sharing those discussions with you so you can apply those same learnings to your life. Welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. So on today's show, we have Oliver Gleason. Oliver is the president of Salient Map Executive Consultancy, providing consulting, coaching, and training for privately owned companies who believe they're great at what they do, but they're not great at growing their business. And that's where you come in, Oliver. I hear you're quite the sports stats guy, if Steve has it right. You're a father. You're looking to impact a lot, and I mean a lot, of early career professionals with a new initiative of yours. You've worked with some amazing brands. You're a lawyer by educational background, and you helped launch and were a major part in launching Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. Thanks for being here and sharing your story, Oliver. Jordan, thanks for having me here. And I, I love this concept. It's not a straight line. So appropriate for so many people. And you've had some amazing collaborators on your program. So privileged to be here. I, I want to ask to start off. I noticed you went to three universities in three different provinces. You know, I'm a big proponent of, of education, although it continues to change now and how it's delivered. But why? Why Why three different universities in three provinces? What was kind of the decision making around it at the time? When I was coming out of high school, I was, I was 18 years old and uh, I played football. And I was very fortunate to have been recruited by several schools in and around Canada. So I had some choice in terms of where I wanted to go. I was from the Hamilton area and many of my friends wanted to go to McMaster. I was recruited to go to McMaster and, and many of my friends played basketball, had great careers there. I wanted to do something different. I was always a bit of a contrarian in that regard. And Acadia was known as a very high uh, performing academic school. But as well, the year before I, I went to university, uh, I, I grew up playing football with, I guess, you know, the family of football royalty in Canada. A teammate of mine was a guy named Bob Lancaster, and his father was Ron Lancaster, you know, considered at the time the greatest player in the history of the Canadian Football League. And Bob had gone to Acadia. He graduated the year before me. His brother, Ron Jr., was a coach at Acadia, and they were quite influential. And also one more legendary CFL player, a fellow named Paul Massotti who was just kickstarting his career uh, with, the, with the Argonauts, was Acadia alum. And when he was doing his, he was going to be a teacher, when he had to do his practicum, he went to my high school and helped assistant coach the soccer team. And I got to know him a little bit. And he was also very influential in talking about how great a place Acadia was. So that's what took me out to Acadia. I did my undergraduate degree, uh, my BA, or they call it barely anything these days. 
and uh, studied political science because I'm sure as we'll get into, I was singularly focused on becoming a lawyer at that time in, in my life. And I knew from grade 12 onward, that's what I wanted to do. And in my, uh, after my second year of playing football at Acadia, I had a very difficult decision to make because back in the day, if you transferred schools, you had to sit out athletically one year. I think that's changed now. I'm not entirely certain about that. And so I had to make a decision of playing my third year at Acadia, or I thought at the time, well, what if I went to a school, did another year of undergrad, played football and applied to that law school that will really pump up my application. So I wanted to go to Queens. My father went to Queens for medical school. I'd been in touch with the coach of Queens at the time who had recruited me when I was in high school, and he was really excited to have me come in. Long story short there, they had some quirky process that I would have had to do at least two years of undergraduate before I could be considered for law school. So I didn't want to do that. So I went to Windsor, which at the time was considered a really uh, up and coming law school. Uh, it was very diverse. It seemed to be cutting edge. So I went to Windsor for my fourth year. So I graduated from Acadia, did a fourth year of academic studies at Windsor, played football, and I thought hit all the check boxes, had great marks, great LSAT. That was an admissions test you had to write to get into law school. And I did not get into University of Windsor. And just on a lark, I applied to one other law school because I was a broke student. And back then it cost about $75 per application. Who had $1,000 kicking around to, to apply to these schools? So I applied to the University of New Brunswick, which at the time was ranked the number one law school in the country and was also the hardest one to get in in terms of applicants, the percentage of successful applicants. And uh, much to my surprise, in mid-August, I got in. Maybe it's because a lot of people declined it. Who knows? But I got that acceptance letter very late and off I went. And I went to University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. That's where I went to law school. And interestingly, you said I went to three universities, but in my final year of law school, uh, they didn't have a football team there. I was able to transfer to the University of Windsor Law School for one semester, first semester. I had some family there, so there's some, some family reasons why I went to Windsor, but I got to play one more year of football in what was at the time my seventh year of university. And I was in a sort of a senior mentorship role with players on the team. That was always a natural role for me, kind of nice segue in terms of what we'll talk to, I'm sure. But uh, that's what took me to my, my three universities. And I really value those experiences and the relationships that I developed there. And to feel very lucky to have gone to all three and been able to play sports as well along the way. So it was, it was football you were playing, not, not uh, were you a great basketball player as well? I'd like to think so, but uh, others would argue violently against that. Now, I was on a very, very good high school basketball team, but I played football in university. And a couple of my teammates went on the Mac. One guy was a two-time first-team All-Canadian center, took Mac to back-to-back -to -back championships. They weren't successful, but they got to the finals, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and actually, the guys on the basketball team in high school are still my best friends today. I mean, we traveled everywhere wow. in high school. We were the first Canadian team ever invited to what was called the Great Florida Shootout, which at the time was the premier high school basketball tournament in North America, invitation only, all expenses paid. And that was an incredible experience. So these guys are still my best friends today. What position were you in football, Oliver? I was a free safety. Free was, safety. Yeah, so I was a defensive back. I was a linebacker in high school. That's really what I should play, but I was a little too skinny, too weak to play that position in university. So they dropped me back in line to defensive back. But uh, I, I really enjoyed that position. It's played those very were, differently today than it used to be back then. So Those were quite the names in there, Ron Lancaster. 
he used to play for the Argo for the for the Tiger Cats, or was he the coach at one time of the Cats? Yeah. He, he coached yeah. Tiger Cats. They won the Grey Cup, I think, in 1999. But uh, he was a famous quarterback for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and I believe Ottawa as well. I think he played for both Rough Riders. But he he was legendary out west. That's where he really made his big name for himself. And then when he came back to the Ontario area, he became a prominent broadcaster for CBC and CTV and did all the CFL broadcasts. He was a really good guy, really nice guy. It was always a great opportunity anytime I had a chance to talk to him. Yeah, and then Paul Mazzotti was a great, great uh, player. I think he's from Hamilton originally as well. That's right. I didn't get to know Paul too well, but he was an, an elite athlete. Like he was an, an incredible football player and, and, and a really nice guy in the short time that I had a, a chance to talk to him. And, and so you knew pretty, pretty into high school, you knew you wanted to be a lawyer. I think you said grade 12. I'm not sure if you kind of had that uh, idea before then. And your dad, you mentioned was a was a doctor was was there any influence from your family that you wanted to become some type of professional uh, designation in terms no, of no, n- not at all. It was all mean. It was all television and all, uh, you know, fake reality. There was a, in the eighties, there was this pretty slick show called LA law and uh, it featured the lives of these LA lawyers. And of course, being an influential teenager, I thought that's what reality was like. This is pretty good. And I was always a talker. I loved to debate uh, based on logic. I took law as an elective in high school in grade 12. And I said, you know, this is for me. So it gave me this singular focus. And when I went to university, it's all I know I wanted to do. Everything was built around going to law school, becoming a lawyer. That was my destiny. This was going to be my one and only career for life was to be a lawyer. And uh, I was laser focused on on becoming a lawyer. And I didn't think there was any other world. I mean, I also grew up, uh, I went to high school in Ancaster, which is just outside of Hamilton. And it was a lovely place to grow up, but a pretty sheltered community, uh, not very diverse. um, And you were surrounded by white collar professionals, but not in the business sense. Uh, Not a lot of entrepreneurs, not a lot of corporate types. It was mostly lawyers, doctors, dentists. Those are the type of professionals that you got exposed to. So my father was was a doctor, had a great practice, wasn't a tremendous business person, but he was a tremendous doctor. And uh, I thought I could do the same, go to law practice. And that was your sort of meal ticket for life. And nothing was ever going to change. So then, yeah, but it, it did change, as we know. And, and you, know, you mentioned it, life's not a straight line. So you got into law and I, it looks like you were a, a lawyer practicing in law for about two to three years. You can correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong. But when did you decide, you know, this might not be the path I, you know, want to take? It was pretty early. I mean, back then, this was pre-Google. When you came out of law school, you just wanted to get a job anywhere. Uh, I didn't know really much about the different fields of law at the time. I knew of two. You could be a litigator or a corporate lawyer. And just the word corporate seemed to turn me off. Like, oh, I'm not going to be some corporate guy. But actually, it's probably I would have been better suited as a corporate lawyer. So I thought I would be a litigator. That's what they did on LA Law. They were all litigators. That's why people tuned in and watched. The reality is nobody ever litigates in law. And if you do litigate, everything gets settled. It's an absolute slog. So uh, I, I ended up getting hired by a, a firm in Hamilton. I did my articling there. That's your apprenticeship. And I got my first job in Hamilton. 
And our clients were institutional insurance companies. So I worked for what's called a, you know, a defense litigation firm. So if you were in a car accident, you didn't mean to do it, but you hit somebody and someone got injured, your insurance would pay for your lawyers. And then eventually you'd get a letter from me saying, dear Mr. Harding, my name is Oliver Gleason. I represent yada, yada, yada. And I'd take you down those steps. And very early on, I mean, I, I, I never went into criminal law even though criminal law was fascinating intellectually, right? That challenge of, of making them prove it and finding that piece of evidence and, and discounting that witness statement. I realized early on that I didn't want to do criminal law because I, wouldn't, I didn't find I would ever associate with the clientele that I would have. And I wouldn't find much fulfillment in that. But then I found that working with insurance companies, it wasn't much different. It was really mm -hmm. difficult. And I want to be careful with my words because everybody needs a job and these roles are important. And being an insurance adjuster uh, is an important role in, 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 in many people's lives. But when you talk about it's not a straight line, I don't know how many people left high school with a singular focus that they were going to become an insurance adjuster, that that was going to be their destiny. And I found that not all, but several of the ones that I came across, they landed there by default, right? They, they wanted to be something else. And there was a sort of pent up anger in these people. And they had tremendous, tremendous power over people's lives in car accident scenarios, et cetera. And their default position was always everybody's a faker. Everyone's a liar. And it was very difficult when I had to write letters of recommendation to our clients to say, look, we went to the pretrial. Here's the medical evidence. Here's what's likely going to happen. And they would write back saying, well, or call me on the phone and say, well, that person calls us every day complaining about their insurance. Just deny them, deny them. And just like, ugh, like, really? And then if it would go down the line, it would go to, if it would go to court eventually, they'd get hammered and they'd have to pay out a ton. Yeah, yeah you were right. Okay, next case. And it was wow. just, it was, it was draining. And the, the case that put me over the edge was actually dog versus dog. If you can imagine that it was small claims court and you know, one dog was accused of attacking the other dog and there was bad dog evidence and the witnesses were corrupt. And, and it was just, it was such a stress. And at the end of it, the, my clients were this lovely elderly couple whose dog was innocent. Believe me, the evidence uh, uh, proved it with beyond a doubt. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the judge sided with the very dramatic witness testimony of a, a person who was not being truthful on the stand. And the insurance company of an elderly couple said, well, that's fine. You lost, but you're gonna have to put down your dog if you want to have coverage. And I just said, what the, you know, what the F is going on here? And I talked to my senior partner about it and he just shrugged like, ah, oh, they're, they're doing it again. And I knew it wasn't for me. So about six months before I left the firm, I was talking to my sister who was living in Paris at the time. Her husband had a job in France, both Canadian, but uh, he had an international job. And I've always wanted to see the world. And she really pushed me to consider like, get out, get out while you can. And I looked around me and I saw a lot of lawyers who are now practicing 10, 15, 20 years, making a good living, absolutely miserable, miserable, because they were caught up in this sort of spider web of they can't do anything else. And if you're an insurance lawyer, your whole life revolved around one or two sentences in the insurance act. So you'd, you'd learn more and more about less and less until eventually you do everything about nothing. And that was, that was your life as, as, a, as a lawyer. And I, I didn't want that. So I made the commitment about six months before I left that I was going to go travel the world. And it was an incredible feeling because now I had this freedom. I had this light at the end of the tunnel. I had no idea now what my future was going to be. It was a totally blank canvas. And, uh, and uh, six months later, I made the decision to, to, to leave the firm. And I, I had tremendous support. 
very surprisingly by my senior partner, maybe because I wasn't a very good young lawyer, who knows. But uh, off I went and I you know, went traveling for nine months, uh, 21 countries, and then strangely ended up in Japan for a year and a half. And, and it began a whole new, whole new chapter in life. And I think you said, I heard you say that when you came to your uh, partner at the law firm and said you were going to leave, he asked you if he could stay for two months or he accepted you wanting to stay for two months. Yeah. What was, your, what was your learning in that? I was flabbergasted. It showed me that I had value. And that's one of the things that I always impress upon early career professionals that you have value. I was certain that when I went to lunch with a senior partner, I said, look, I want to leave. He was going to throw me out of my ear that day. Like, how dare you? We invested in you. We thought you were going to be one to help us build this firm. And he just shrugged his shoulders or his shoulders sunk and said, when do you want to leave? And I was like, two months. I needed the money. And he just oh, exhaled. Okay, good, good, good. And I was like, holy shit. I, I mean something to him. I actually provide value to him. And I realized that if I had just like left next week or in two weeks, it would have been highly inconvenient for him to, as an understatement. And uh, for the next two months, uh, he was, he was just an incredible, incredible guy. And on my very final day, I had a surprise lunch where the senior partner of this firm and the senior partner of the firm that I articled at got together unbeknownst and took me out to lunch and several hours of drinks and traded some stories and gave me some life tips. And it was a wonderful way to leave the profession at that time. Although I am still a lawyer, I'm just not a practicing lawyer for a, for a firm, but uh, it was a journey. So you got some of that advice before you were going to go off on, on your trip. And so you went from a what seemed what could seem like a stable career to now freedom, uh, as you called it. Was there a holy shit moment? Like, what am I going to do when I get back? Or, or were you just like, I I'm all in, I'm going, going on this trip and I'll worry about it sometime into the trip. Yeah, it was definitely the latter. It was definitely the latter. It, I, I, it was exhilarating. Every day I woke up, look, I love working for a living. So I want to be careful with my words here as well. But every of day I was traveling, I woke up and I said, I'm not working today. I'm somewhere. I'm somewhere in the world, meeting people, having new experiences. It was absolutely exhilarating. And about halfway through, I recall I was in, I was in Spain and uh, I had a good friend at the University of Windsor. He was the quarterback on the football team and him and his uh, his wife had been living in Japan for three to four years teaching English. And we were just, you know, bantering back and forth in an email. I said, look, I don't know if I'm going to be ready to go back to the rat race. I knew where my trip would end up. I knew how much money I had and how long it would last. And he said, well, come to Japan. I said, I never even thought of that. He goes, come on up, teach English. Just, you know, chill out for the year and, and think about it. And uh, strange world. This guy would be a great podcast guest for you. He has an amazing podcast called okay. Running Podcast. Sorry, plugging right. him. He lives yep. in Saudi Arabia, has some tremendous guests. He's in Canada tonight, and him and his two teenage sons are coming over for ribs and chicken tonight. Very oh, strange wow. timing. Yeah, yeah. So he's the one who convinced me to uh, go to Japan. And so I knew I had at least a temporary destination. So in the back half of my world travels, what are you going to do next? I'm going to go to Japan. And then uh, I was in Japan for a year and a half. And living in Japan, it was easy. It was easy. Once you get settled in, you're, my life was perfect. I had a great salary. I was teaching great students. You had private students. I played on a club basketball team. I had, that was a Japanese league only. So all my teammates were Japanese. I had great Japanese friends. I had great expat friends. And I remember being at a party one night and I was talking to a Canadian guy who was around you know, 
45 or something. We're telling our stories. How did you come to Japan? He's like, yeah, you know, I came here just for three months on a visa. Hey, you know, 20 years later, look at this. <laughs> and I just stopped and my jaw dropped. And my life at this moment was perfect. It couldn't have been better in Japan. I ran home. I called my mother. I said, I'm coming home in two weeks. And I, and I yanked myself out of the country because it could be that easy to blink and wake up and you're there for 10 years. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to be a guy at 40 coming back to Canada, looking like some drifter applying for jobs and interviewing with people who didn't understand the value of travel and international experience and saying, well, why would I want you? What, what value do you offer? And so I had to yank myself out of there when it was, when it was a perfect time for me there. But it was an easy decision. Yeah, for sure. And definitely, I'm sure in Japan, you learned so many key lessons that for the right person interviewing you would definitely find value in that, right? You know, being in a different culture, it, it, it sounds like you did really well there transitioning. That's an important skill set in itself. So you, you did come back, Oliver, and you had an, what, what seems from the outside like an incredible career at a company called SDI Marketing. How did that come about, uh, you coming back and, and landing kind of in this sports marketing events world? Well, when I, when I did come back, I sort of chilled out for the summer. Uh, it was 2001, I believe. And then in the fall, I started my work hunt. And I knew I did not want to do traditional law. I, I didn't give up being a lawyer. I was still a licensed lawyer. And I wanted to get involved in sports. How? I didn't know. I mean, Google, was, Google wasn't a thing yet. You couldn't just internet search how do you get into sports marketing? Yahoo was the search engine at the time. And I was just going from place to place, trying to have informational interview. And I went to IMG because that was the only place I'd heard of. And uh, uh, a senior partner there uh, came out. Uh, I won't mention names. Nothing wrong with it, but I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> put anyone on the podcast that I shouldn't. And he had been used to this routine. Guys coming into the office going, I want to be in sports. And he had a ready-to-go package and say, here you go. And it listed a whole bunch of different companies that you could interview at. Uh, or, or meet and reach out to. And one was called Second Dimension International, which was what SDI was prior to KFCing itself and going SDI marketing. And uh, I, you know, I, I threw in my hat, my ring in the hat there, as did many other places. And I was shocked to get a call back uh, from Denise Dorkman. And she brought me in and I, I, I got a chance to meet Roy Rudger. And I was dressed to the nines in my lawyer's suit. And everybody was all dressed casually. And I had a great conversation with Roy. And for, for those that don't know, Roy Rudger, his path was not a straight line. He was a guy who played hockey internationally, a Canadian who played in Germany and captained the German national team. And so he had that type of path and he saw some of himself in me and uh, took a chance at me and said, really, we don't really have a job or a role, but you know, maybe, maybe you want to start next week. And they were, we were a fledgling sports marketing company at the time. Like we were a minnow and they really didn't have a big budget clients. And I worked for next to nothing, like less than the minimum wage. And I went back to the bottom. I mean, to the bottom, I ate humble pie. I slept on my younger sister's futon who was in college because I didn't have enough to pay rent at the time, but I was committed, committed to do something, to do something different. And uh, that was a start at SDI. And again, second dimension international at the time. And it was a it was a wild ride. It, it really was a tremendous place to learn, to grow. Um, and, you know, some will say, well, why, you know, why did you stay? If you're not a straight line, why did you stay at a company for 15 years? We weren't the same company. That at Second Dimension, which eventually became SDI, 
was probably seven different companies when I worked there. We just kept evolving, 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 getting into new spaces and on each step along the way. And I, and I feel very privileged that in some events, especially or in some respects, especially in the event marketing space, sort of I was leading that charge, kind of like the guy with the machete at the front of the jungle, just chopping your way through. And we were just learning as we went. We really didn't know. And as we would sort of climb each rung on the ladder and we'd get exposure to other competitor agencies or different types of clients that we would hold in awe and, and, and we'd get in the room with these people and we'd say, it's just people. It's just people. Our people are as good as their people. We, we can do this. Why, why are we pigeonholing ourselves? And, and to Roy's credit, he really sort of took the leash off his, his senior executive team and just said, go, go figure it out. Go grow. We weren't, we weren't hogtied. We could go out and figure out where the next adventure was. And uh, SDI turned to this small seven-person organization when I worked there into this you know, 500 plus juggernaut with offices around North America and the Middle East. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was tough to say goodbye, but we had sort of, uh, we had given each other everything we could. I gave them everything they could. They gave me everything I could. And it was a great time to part. And I've always wanted to do my own thing. And, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's just the next chapter in life, but it, it was an incredible, incredible place. What was the position you grew to there? Was it COO? No, it was executive vice president. We had a, a few vice presidents and corporate counsel. So I was, yes. I was still our, our in-house lawyer. And interestingly, uh, going back to law, but having one career, I discovered advertising and marketing law when I was at FBI. Ah. And uh, I got into that space. I did some side work for some other agencies as their advertising and marketing lawyer. And I loved it. I loved it. And if I had a, you know, a crystal ball or a time machine went back in time, if I had fallen into advertising and marketing law, it's very possible I could have had a career there. You know, the, the main difference between advertising and marketing law and insurance law is that insurance law, all the parties are getting together to minimize negativity. It's just a drain Everyone leaves the process dissatisfied. The insurance companies mm -hmm. pay more than they want to. The plaintiffs get less than they want to. Everyone leaves angry. Everyone leaves injured. It's awful. And advertising and marketing law, say you're putting together a deal, road hockey to conquer cancer, Scotiabank, Sydney Crosby or something, whatever the case may be, everyone is coming together to do something positive. And everyone is working together. And you're just making sure everyone's rights and obligations are understood. But uh, it, it, it really was a, you know, a, a great area of law. So anyway, so back, back to your question. We had a series of you know, executive VPs and uh, it was that and corporate counsel. But along the way, I had to play every role manageable from operations to advertising and marketing law to sales pitch guy to creative. To, so I worked in every different department that an organization could have, a larger organization could have. So I, I cut my teeth in every single area. Um, and, uh, and that's, that allowed me to become sort of battle tested, battle hardened, if you would. And when I became a, a consultant coach and trainer and started my own company, when I work with organizations, I can relate to every single department. And I also understand how they got to work together, right? They don't work in these artificial silos. So that was SDI was just a, an amazing training ground for me and helping catapult me into the next level of, of my career. We'll get into it with your early career professionals, but was there something that stood out over those 14 years that helped you to continue to advance and oversee or be involved in the different departments? Right. I think that's important. Like you had the ability to see 
a lot of different parts of the business. That's right. Yes. Um, what allowed you to do that? Was it you just continuing to look for opportunities? Did, did, was your boss just really good at opening paths for you? At well, I think we just had to, it was almost out of necessity. We almost had to do this to, to evolve and survive. We, we had to know, we had to be generalists uh, in, in almost everything. And I would say I wasn't, wasn't the only one who sort of took on that role. Many of the executives had to get exposure to these various departments. Uh, but you know, one of the things I loved doing when I was at SDI was mentoring the people who were on my team and anyone else who wanted to be a part of it. Because as, I, as we went through these various steps that I was talking about earlier and getting exposure to new areas, it took us a while to figure everything out. And once we figured it out, it was very figureoutable if somebody would have just told you how to do it. We had to do it the, slow, like, you know, the, the long and slow way. So as soon as I came into some knowledge, if I could train somebody else in five minutes, what took me five years, I was all in because that was just going to accelerate them. It was going to accelerate our company. And ultimately that would accelerate me. It was very yes. selfish. It would accelerate yes. me as well. So I, I had a huge benefit in, in mentoring early career professionals, but I got to say, I got a rush out of seeing the satisfaction when they would not have some piece of knowledge and then they would apply it and then they would, they would flourish and they'd be energized. And again, hat to your earlier question. So having exposure to all these different departments allowed me to also teach people to become more generalists and, and really broaden their skill set. So uh, again, fantastic experience. Yeah. And you played a big role there. You, you know, probably a feather in your cap was launching road hockey to conquer cancer uh, with a few people we know really well. And the event has raised $25 million for cancer research over 10 years. I also wanted to just speak with you about, you launched an event in Doha, Qatar. Uh, what was it like launching a big sports event or sports fundraiser in a place like Doha? How, how did that come about? It was very exciting. So going back to Roy Rudger, our, our uh, present owner of SDI, he saw an opportunity in Qatar. And this was prior to the country being awarded the World Cup of Soccer. He had some business contacts over there and went and did some investigation and thought this is the place like let's let's put down our flag. You had to partner up with a local business. That's what the laws were at the time. So we partnered up with a local group, sent two people over from our office. One was, you know, I think he's still the creative director at SDI. He was not an events guy, but was off for the adventure. And, and it was a slow build. It took a while to build up some relationships. But once we did... Long and behold, we ran a couple of smaller events. They grew in scope, and our big pitch was pitching for Shell. Uh, Shell was a massive organization in an oil and gas company like Qatar. And what's really interesting about Qatar, which maybe a lot of people don't know, is that they run the country pretty much like a business. They have what's called the you know, 2032 uh, National Vision. So they built a business plan for uh, four pillars of the of the country of where they want to excel and flourish so they don't have to be reliant on oil and gas when it all runs out. So there's a lot of pressure on the expat corporations to invest in the company. So when we won the shell business, it was to build a program that used soccer or football as a medium to help uh, take on uh, uh, childhood obesity and diabetes because it was an epidemic over there. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, people are rich and have video game habits. It's, it's really hot. You can't get outside. There was a dearth of playing fields. And so Shell was getting really invested in opening up more spaces for people to have the opportunity to play. So we wanted to do an event that would really put this on the map. 
And in Qatar, they have an event. It's, it's a national holiday called National Sports Day, where all organizations are expected to bring out their employees and engage them in sporting and healthy activity. So a National Sporting Day, we plotted this event to do the world's biggest 4v4 soccer match. And uh, we set a Guinness World Record. And it was great. We could really rely on the template of Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer and borrow upon many of the logistical things that we'd already worked out in terms of how to check in people really quickly, how to get people on the field, off the field, warm them up. And uh, what was different, whereas in North America and Canada, you're squeezing for every charity dollar, this event was completely funded by Shell. So we just had to prove the case, show what it cost, and you got paid for doing good work. So that was that was nice. <laughs> you, weren't, you, weren't, you weren't squeezing every penny. But uh, it's, it's an amazing place to do work, and, uh, and, and SDIs continue to flourish over there. They've, they've developed a, a new organization called the Football Factory, where they do exclusively soccer sponsorships. And I'm actually heading over there for the World Cup. That's my bucket list. Oh, thing. wow. Yeah, going with a couple of friends, those basketball friends from the high school team. And we're going to go over there for a couple of weeks and cheer on Canada. And uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to, to rub elbows with a bunch of old colleagues as well. That's great. That'll be a, that'll be a bucket list sporting event for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Oliver, you went on, you, you went and you did launch your own business, uh, salient map executive consultancy. And, you know, we can speak about a few things you do in the business, but something I'm excited to, to discuss is you really want to make an impact on early career professionals. You've kind of mentioned how mentorship's important to you. I, I did speak with a, a friend of mine who's at SDI and, and she, without saying her name, I'm sure she wouldn't mind, uh, said how, how you had so much energy for mentoring people and helping them along their way. So that definitely, definitely Sean showed up or showed through. Wh what are you doing right now for early career professionals and, and what do you hope to offer and, and give back? No, th thanks, Jordan. No, I've always, I've always wanted to mentor early career professionals and uh, it was born out of my own frustrations and going back to those early days in law. So I remember early days, all the lawyers would hang out and gossip Fridays for beers and I would just be a fly in the wall. And they'd always gossip about this one lawyer who'd been practicing for 15 years, but for whatever reason, they sort of uh, labeled him as sort of the town imbecile. And I was so excited a couple of weeks later to learn that I was going to be in a motion, which is kind of like an argument at court. It's like a trial before a trial. And he was going to be on the other side. And I was a cocky young guy, right? I'm like, oh, this is going to be a slam dunk. And I got absolutely annihilated, annihilated, because I just didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any early career professional skills. And the judge yelled at me. And the courtroom is filled with other motions are fast. The courtroom is filled with the lawyers who are going to go next and their clients. So it was packed. And I, you know, I really got caught with my pants down. And, uh, you know, actually, I would have been better off, literally, if my pants were down, I would have been better off. The judge said, hey, Mr. Gleason, your pants are down. It would have distracted everybody from my professional incompetence. And uh, I would have gotten out of there a little bit earlier, but or easier. But I came out of there just, again, a sense of frustration. And I had this frust these frustration points, these pants down points, so many different times in my career. And I was just dedicated to help people at every moment, as I had mentioned earlier. And, uh, and, and that's what I've been doing for the last 20, 20 or so years. And uh, as much as I love my core business, and I want to say like shout outs to all my current clients, I love helping clients succeed, helping their people succeed. 
but there are still 10,000 me's. There's still 10,000 consultants, coaches, trainers. And when I am working with CEOs and business owners and their teams, and we're in a room and we're working on holistic strategy for the organization. And in the corner of my eye, I see an early career professional struggling with some particular issue. And I, I keep looking over like, okay, just give me one second here. I need to help you right now. I'm, I, I, it's compelled. It's like a magnet. I must, I must help them through it. And this is from their micro or their macro issues of how do they work on this uh, project or this operational aspect of the business to their micro issues. How do I do that little hack in Excel to, to save three hours in my day? I, I feel really compelled to help them succeed. And um, in the last few years, I had learned about the success of online businesses. And I guess the reason I never really got into this mentorship space is because I didn't think I could scale it. I didn't think I, I could, I, you know, I could help people one-on-one, -on -one, but if I wanted to make a life or a business out of it, I'm not independently wealthy yet. I still need to make some money. And I've learned a lot and I've gotten some coaching on how to build an online business. And I want to scale this and I want to scale this in, in two fronts. I want to impact 10 million. I'd say, why not? Let's impact 10 million early career professionals. I ran the numbers. I thought if I can have the impact, why not? This is early career professionals around the world. And I want to help on the, on the let's call it the consumer side, the early career professional who's feeling frustrated and they're stuck. And what I want to teach them is that wherever you are in your career, you can think, act, and perform like a C-level executive right now, right now. And that's what I've learned in my experience. These learnings that you pick up and you accumulate sporadically, randomly, uh, through good fortune, through maybe you got a good mentor, it takes 10, 15 years. This can be taught early, quickly, the foundations that they can learn and become impactful immediately and have the, the impact that they desire at work. And then there's other foundational pillars that they can grow into. But once they know it and they have exposure to it, it gives them a professional roadmap. So I want to help early career professionals come through that route and let them know that they have someone here that's going to stand on their shoulder, metaphorically, and help them along the way. And then from a, from a business standpoint, Jordan, so many organizations are struggling with this war on talent, right? We're in this great resignation now. And there's, there's plenty of research to support that it's not all about money. It's about investment. And organizations aren't training people, but it's not that they don't care about people, right? Like back in the 80s, companies, people worked at companies for life. So they invested yes, in people, yes. they had training programs, but eventually that started to change and they pulled out of these programs. And for a while, the training still worked on inertia. Some people just really cared about training and gave up their own time to train, but these programs eventually fizzled. And now the infrastructure isn't there to really develop these people. And they want to develop the people, but they don't even necessarily know how. So on the business side of it, I'm saying, look, you've got to keep this talent. You've got to invest in them. You want to help your people. You care about your people. I'm not saying you don't care, but you need something for them. So I'm, I'm speaking to both parties here. I'm trying to provide something for early career professionals they can access. And I'm trying to help the early career professional by seeing if I can get the businesses to fund their training so they can get this impact, get this learning, and just feel better about themselves, right? Not have I remember back when I was young, you know, Sunday night would roll around, you'd watch your favorite show on TV, and then this just pit just sits in your stomach, and you're like, ah, oh. it's like, it's Monday, tomorrow, here I go again. I want people to come to work with energy, and whether they're going to go on a straight line or otherwise, they feel empowered to make better choices. And when you get exposure to certain things, Jordan, I know you're getting tremendous exposure to, to, to this program, you would know that it unlocks a whole set of creative uh, and intellectual skills that are there, they're just dormant. 
And why do we have to wait 10 years to open that box? Let's let's help them get there earlier. Long answer to a, a simple question, but I No, that that's perfect. And I think, you know, you in the program I saw, you gave me a snip snippet of it. You know, you have this idea of a guy in a bubble with a comfort zone. Uh, and definitely doing this podcast was stepping out of my comfort zone. What about yourself? You know, I see you doing these loom videos. You're a lawyer by training. So people would say, oh, you're a good speaker and this and that. Has it, has it been a bit of a challenge to push some of the boundaries for you and do some things you maybe weren't doing before? I assume it's fun too. Oh, it's fun. And I'm not going to lie and say, oh, yes, it's natural. I was a natural speaker and I just loved it. No, it, like fear is there and it stares you right in the face every day. I probably should have started my own business five years earlier. But I was paralyzed by the fear. What if I don't succeed? Will anyone care? Will anyone listen to me? Do I have any value? Those doubts come in your mind. And, and, I, and I did quite a bit of research around the subject of fear when I was launching my business and, and, and learned that some of the business people that I really look up to, the Richard Branson's of the world, I think Richard Branson's, I'm scared shitless every day. Like, <laughs> so it never goes away. You learn how to manage it. You learn how to control it. And you learn that it always gets better on the other side. And one of the things I encourage early career professionals or any professional to, I, I say it's called Celebration Day. And you put it on your calendar. Jordan, I want you to do Celebration Day. So what you're going to do after this okay. call, you're going to go on your calendar, pick a time, you know, three months from now, and you're going to have a meeting with yourself. And when you have that meeting, you're going to pick, throw a dart back in time, 2019, 2017, and think about everything of that day, how you looked at the world, how you understood certain concepts. And then think about how you understand them now and go, oh my, you're going to be blown away. You will say, who was that imposter? How did that person ever get here? And it's an incredible feeling of accomplishment and progression. And so, I, you know, I had all of these feelings and I've learned, and this is what I'm trying to impress on early career professionals, that go for it. You have to push yourself. And it's easier said than done. It really is. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't just say, okay, he said, go for it. So I'm just going to go for it now. And, and some steps are baby steps and some steps are, are, are larger ones. But I, I also believe in the human spirit. We're a species that somehow rose to the top of the food chain. We figure it out and we don't yeah. necessarily know how we're going to do it. And I remember one year I was at, at university and I became quite ill in November and I was hospitalized and I had six term papers left to do. And I was going to drop out of school. I wasn't going to get the marks. I wasn't going to get to law school. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, I'm going to be home for Christmas in six weeks. I'm going to be sitting under the tree with my family. And when I'm there, somehow all of this will have gotten done. How? I don't know. I have no idea, but I just kept thinking of that moment because I knew I would figure it out. I just didn't know how I was going to figure it out because I was going to be at that Christmas tree. And sure enough, in that Christmas tree moment, I paused. I had a moment of reflection and went, oh, like I, I got through it. And so that's what I would encourage everybody. It just, you figure it out. And by getting out of your comfort zone, that's when you start getting exposure to different learnings and environments and stimuli that fuel that step and give you the, the courage and the knowledge to get there faster. So uh, that, that would be my advice to any early career professional that's stuck in that comfort zone is give it's it a go. It's like, uh, you know, the thing I've started saying to myself is get out of your own way. I don't know if that resonates at all. <laughs> oh, certainly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So where, where can people uh, find out more about you, Oliver? I know you've got your website, you know, is it LinkedIn you keep up on and people can follow you on? How, how can people see what you're up to? 
I would say if there's professionals out there, LinkedIn's the best way. You can connect me with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to my website, uh, Oliver at salientmap.com. But LinkedIn, I would say, is the quickest way to, uh, to connect with me. And I love connecting and, and meeting new people. And, uh, and uh, just, just a privilege to, to, to connect with, with people at all levels in the profession and, and see if I can help them get to the next level, whether they're a CEO or first year on, on the job. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Oliver, so much for sharing your story, for doing what you're doing for young professionals and for helping uh, the privately owned businesses that you help. I know you're making an impact for many of them as well. And this was a lot of fun and I hope to see you soon. No, thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. And uh, this is, again, a, a fantastic program and I'm wishing you best of luck in broadening your audience. Thank you, Oliver. What did you take away from our chat today? I'd love to know. Let me know on Instagram at It's Not A Straight Line or connect with me on LinkedIn. If this episode was helpful, would you mind leaving me a review on whatever podcast app you use? I'd really appreciate it. You can always go back to previous episodes to hear more insightful conversations to help you build your own unique life. Thanks for listening to It's Not A Straight Line. Until next time.